There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black. It is... Nighttime here in Savannah. I can only record. Wait, listen, see if you can hear this. Probably not. That was the click of the lamp engaging here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. I'm only able to record at night these days because there is so much um, activity here in the haunted mansion, workers and such doing all kinds of. Uh, work, I guess is what you call it when people do things with their muscles. I guess you call that work. I wouldn't know. But uh, yeah, after months and months of planning and organizing and interviewing and what have you, we are knee deep in all kinds of projects. The bathroom, upstairs bathroom is getting renovated. The downstairs bathroom is getting renovated. The hovel is getting renovated. The garden is getting renovated. Everything is happening kind of all at the same time. Uh, Everything is coated in a thin layer of dust at all times, no matter how much dusting is done. It always looks as if somebody has shaken out their dandruff on every surface of our domicile. I was in Oklahoma City this past weekend. I don't know if I've ever been to Oklahoma City before. It is kind of exactly what you think it's going to be. It is Oklahoma City. That's neither. That's not a statement of judgment, neither for it nor against it, but it pretty much lived up to my expectations almost to a T. It is, uh, well, it's flat, you know, it's flat out there and whatever part of the country Oklahoma is in, just above Texas, and there is, there doesn't seem to be much to recommend Oklahoma City to the general population, but the people there seem to like it just fine. I tried to find out why. I asked the crowd. They didn't have any particularly good answers. Tornadoes, they said, which didn't seem like a great answer to me, but maybe they take pride in those whirling winds 
that threaten them every so often. I took advantage of my couple of days in OKC to play some poker. There's a casino about 25 minutes outside of OKC. Took an Uber up there, spent Saturday happily swaddled in a poker game. Did I win money? Who cares? What difference does that make? That's not important. What's important is that I had a nice time. But yes, I won money. Not that much. And now I am back in sultry Savannah, though it is not so sultry today. The weather last week was in the 80s. Today, it's considerably chillier. Weather, I guess, no matter where you live, has a way of doing that, going up, going down. I am probably, like many of you, obsessively trying to follow this Ukrainian war. It holds a space of utter fascination for me that such a thing could happen right there, right in, right in, Euro, right in Europe's uh, lap. Now, obviously, look, Europe has spent much of its history embroiled in bloodshed. It's kind of what they do. But I, I guess I thought I wouldn't see it in my lifetime in any meaningful way. Obviously, there was the Bosnian conflicts. That happened, you know, and when Yugoslav, uh, Yugoslavia broke up and all of that. But um, it didn't seem nearly as scary as this, probably because there were smaller players messing around with that thing. But, you know, this time you got Russia, big, bad Russia invading Ukraine, where I, you know, my ancestral homeland at least one quarter of my family hails from Odessa, maybe more. But, you know, a lot of Jews come from that area, my family being one of them. So, you know, it's hard not to, it's, you know, it's, it's a funny, th- war is a funny thing to, to view from afar. And of course, in my lifetime, I've only viewed it from afar, and hopefully that will remain the case forevermore. But it's impossible, I think, to not get, what's the word? There's no good word to describe the emotion of war watching. Excitement comes close, but excitement implies a happiness that I don't think any of us feel. Instead, it's like a dreadful excitement where you open the research machine and you know, you crank it up and you look at the headlines and you, maybe you look at Twitter and, and, and you're looking for what the latest information is. Well, you're looking for videos, I guess, of, of, of explosions. And it's not, none of it's good. And yet it's impossible for me anyway, to not look at it. You know, I'm not, I'm definitely not looking at anything graphic, anything graphic. I, I don't have any stomach for. And, and fortunately, there doesn't seem to have been that much of it to this point. But, you know, you feel guilt. I feel guilty looking at this stuff and, you know, kind of rooting for the Ukrainians. Like, you don't want to root for anybody at war, but at the, or I should say, you, you don't want to root against anybody at war. But at the same time, it's, imp- it's kind of impossible not to pick sides. I mean, this just seems so clearly aggressive and ugly in nature. That, you know, I think like most people, it's hard not to just kind of root for these scrappy Ukrainians, hoping they manage to hold on and not feeling good about any of it. I don't understand any of it. I don't understand the history. I don't understand the motives other than, you know, kind of what the surface stuff I'm told on the news. I don't understand the feelings. I don't understand the relationship between Ukraine and Russia. Like, I don't understand any of it. But from 30,000 feet anyway, it's, it's hard not to look at it as just a naked land grab by Putin. So I don't know what's going to happen. You know, there's, there, as of this recording, 
there's kind of a narrative emerging that the Ukrainians are punching above their weight and they're doing great and they're holding on and blah, blah, blah. But that feels very simplistic to me. And it also feels like it's maybe feeding into uh, a kind of feel-good narrative that we want to be true, but may or may not be in the coming days and weeks. So that I find that kind of frightening and uh, I'm loath to look at this as anything positive. You know, I'm doom scrolling like everybody else. I can't help it. My temperament is maybe similar to that of Heathcliff. A little bit laconic, a little bit morose, a little bit pessimistic, a little bit uh, turning away from the silver linings in things, or maybe being unable to even find them. And that seems to be the case with Heathcliff. The last time we were together, when Catherine came back, or Kathy came back from her kind her, her kidnapping, I guess, she had healed up at Thrush Cross Grange after being kidnapped by the Lintons and has emerged a new beauty and entered back at the Earnshaw estate, emerging radiantly in front of Heathcliff, who has been playing in the mud, basically, or just sort of relegated to chores in the field, and he's been downgraded as much as one can be downgraded in a household. And Kathy uh, looks at him and laughs. He says, uh, I shall be, I'm, I'm dirty. I shall be as dirty as I please, and I like to be dirty, and I will be dirty. And he kind of stomps off. And that's sort of where we left it. And uh, again, Mrs. Dean is doing the narrating. I don't know why I said narrating, but that's what I said. So let us pick it up now. We are in Chapter 7 of Wuthering Heights. After playing lady's maid to the newcomer and putting my cakes in the oven and making the house and kitchen cheerful with great fires, befitting Christmas Eve, I prepared to sit down and amuse myself by singing carols all alone, regardless of Joseph's affirmations that he considered the merry tunes I chose as next door to songs, meaning you shouldn't do that. You know, Joseph, that stern scolder, is uh, probably, you know, like one of those footloose parents is saying you can't dance and you can't sing, especially on Christmas. Mrs. Dean, it's sacrilegious. He had retired to private prayer in his chamber, and Mr. and Mrs. Earnshaw were engaging Missy's attention by sundry gay trifles bought for her to present to the little Lintons as an acknowledgment of their kindness. They had invited them to spend the morrow at Wuthering Heights, and the invitation had been accepted, on one condition. Mrs. Linton begged that her darlings might be kept carefully apart from that naughty swearing boy, meaning Heathcliff. Under these circumstances, I remained solitary. I smelt the rich scent of the heating spices, and admired the shining kitchen utensils, the polished clock, decked in holly, the silver mugs ranged on a tray ready to be filled with mulled ale for supper, and above all, the speckless purity of my particular care, the scoured and well-swept 
floor. Well, you know, this this sounds like the setup of some kind of comedic sketch. It is Christmas Eve. Everything is spick and span. Everything is spotless. The holly is draped across the clocks. And of course, the scoured and well-swept floor. And we have guests coming. Everything is just so. And yet somewhere in the house lurks a dirty boy. And when those two forces meet, the dirty boy and the well-scoured and well-swept floor, oh, I think there could be trouble. We'll see. Shall we read on? I gave due inward applause to every object, and then I remembered how old Earnshaw used to come in when all was tidied and called me a cant lass and slip a shilling into my hand as a Christmas box. And from that... I went on to think of his fondness for Heathcliff, and his dread lest he should suffer neglect after death had removed him, and that naturally led me to consider the poor lad's situation now, and from singing I changed my mind to crying. It struck me soon, however, there would be more sense in endeavouring to repair some of his wrongs than shedding tears over them. I got up and walked into the court to seek him. He was not far. I found him smoothing the glossy coat of the new pony in the stable and feeding the other beasts according to custom. Make haste, Heathcliff, I said. The kitchen is so comfortable and Joseph is upstairs. Make haste and let me dress you smart before Miss Cathy comes out. And then you can sit together with the whole hearth to yourselves and have a long chatter till bedtime. He proceeded with his task and never turned his head towards me. "'Come, are you coming?' I continued. "'There's a little cake for each yet nearly enough, "'and you'll need half an hour's donning.' "'I waited five minutes, but getting no answer, left him. "'Catherine supped with her brother and sister-in-law. "'Joseph and I joined at an unsociable meal, "'seasoned with reproofs on one side and sauciness on the other. "'Well, I think we know who's being reproofing and who's being saucy. "'His cake and cheese remained on the table all night for the fairies.' He managed to continue work till nine o'clock, and then marched dumb and dour to his chamber. Well, I guess the floor's not going to get mussed up after all. I was all set for mud pies to be flung, for flour to rain from the ceiling rafters, for all kinds of merriment. But I suppose it is not to be. Kathy sat up late, having a world of things to order for the reception of her new friends. She came into the kitchen once to speak to her old one, but he was gone, and she only stayed to ask what was the matter with him, and then went back. In the morning he rose early, and as it was a holiday, carried his ill humor onto the moors, not reappearing till the family were departed for church. Fasting and reflection seemed to have brought him to a better spirit. He hung about me for a while and having screwed up his courage, exclaimed abruptly, Nelly, make me decent. I'm going to be good. High time, Heathcliff, I said. You have grieved Catherine. She's sorry she ever came home, I dare say. It looks as if you envied her because she is more thought of than you. The notion of envying Catherine was incomprehensible to him, but the notion of grieving her he understood clearly enough. Did she say she was grieved? He inquired, looking very serious. 
Well, she cried when I told her you were off again this morning. Well, I cried last night, he returned, and I had more reason to cry than she. Yes, you had the reason of going to bed with a proud heart and an empty stomach, said I. Proud people breed sad sorrows for themselves. Well, that's a good, that's a good little quote. Proud people breed sad sorrows for themselves. Yes, I suppose they do. And as if in reproach for those proud people, the lamp that I had just turned on decided to extinguish itself. It is out. I don't know if the bulb has gone or the ghost in my haunted mansion is saying, tut, tut, I'm trying to rest. I do not know the cause, but I am sitting in shadow now here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. And with that, why don't we take a break? We will return in a moment here on Obscure. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Back on Obscure, you would have thought during the break I would have taken the time to go find a light bulb and change it out. But the fact of the matter is the house is in such a state of clutter that I don't even know where the light bulbs are at the moment. Everything is just, oh, it, it, you know, it, it looks like one of those Oklahoma tornadoes has run through. Mess everywhere. And we have been living like this. Well, essentially, since we moved in six months ago, but it it had calmed down for a while, and now the uh, chaos and anarchy has returned in full fluster, because that's what it feels like. The house is in full fluster. So, proud people breed sad sorrows for themselves, and indeed, they do because what is pride if not vainglory? And the vainglorious puff themselves up and feel each pinprick of life as a personal affront and so breed for themselves sad sorrows. But if you be ashamed of your touchiness, you must ask pardon. Mind, when she comes in, you must go up and offer to kiss her and say, well, you know best what to say. Only do it heartily, and not as if you thought her converted into a stranger by her grand dress. And now, though I have dinner to get ready, I'll steal time to arrange you so that Edgar Linton shall look quite a doll beside you, and that he does. You are younger, and yet I'll be bound you are taller and twice as broad across the shoulders. You could knock him down in a twinkling. Don't you feel that you could? Heathcliff's face brightened a moment. Then it was overcast afresh, and he sighed. But, Nellie, if I knocked him down twenty times, that wouldn't make him less handsome or me more so. 
I wish I had light hair and a fair skin, and was dressed and behaved as well, and had a chance of being as rich as he will be. And cried for mamma at every turn, I added, and trembled if a country lad heaved his fist against you, and sat at home all day for a shower of rain. Oh, Heathcliff, you are showing a poor spirit. Come to the glass, and I'll let you see what you should wish. Do you mark those two lines between your eyes, and those thick brows, that instead of rising arched sink in the middle, and that couple of black fiends so deeply buried who never open their windows boldly, but lurk glinting under them like devil's spies, wish and learn to smooth away the surly wrinkles, to raise your lids frankly, and change the fiends to confident, innocent angels, suspecting and doubting nothing, and always seeing friends where they are not sure of foes. Don't get the expression of a vicious cur that appears to know the kicks it gets are its dessert, and yet hates all the world, as well as the kicker, for what it suffers. I pause there for a moment, because it's quite a lovely little speech. Quite a lovely little speech from Mrs. Dean. You know, it's, uh, Heathcliff starts with his, I wish I had light hair and a fair skin. And your heart kind of breaks for him, does it not? For he is dusky in comparison to all the sun-kissed Lintons and Earnshaws of the American Moors there in America. I, you know, I don't, I, I'm hesitant to, to cast it in racial terms, this book, because I don't quite, I think it would be um, improper, perhaps, or, in, or inaccurate to parallel the kind of racial attitudes occurring in uh, this part of America at that time versus our own part of America. Because, of course, this is a British, uh, excuse me, American novel excuse me, but you understand what I'm saying. Like over there, I don't know what the racial attitudes were exactly. And so it's hard for me to, to sort of draw parallels here and say that it's reflective of some deeper social consciousness. I don't know that it is. I don't know that it isn't. It very well may be, but it's an, it's an interesting theme from Emily Bronte, the darker character being loathed wishing for lightness, and Mrs. Dean saying, in essence, you know, dark is beautiful, to paraphrase. Look at, the, look at those thick brows and your dark eyes. She's basically saying, look, you're, you're handsome. You're a good-looking kid, she's saying. You're broad at the shoulder, you're tall, but you look out at the world like, uh, through eyes that are like devil's spies. Instead, Look out at the world, change the fiends to confident, innocent angels. Give yourself one of them SpongeBob looks, you know? The big eyes, the hopeful smile. Look at the world not as your enemy, but as your friend until proven otherwise. Because, other, because if you don't, you're going to appear to know the kicks that you get in this world are deserved. You're going to hate the world and... Uh, you know, there's a better way to go through life, kid. Heathcliff responds, in other words, I must wish for Edgar Linton's great blue eyes and even forehead, he replied. I do, and that won't help me to them. 
A good heart will help you to a bonny face, my lad, I continued, if you were a regular black, and a bad one will turn the bonniest into something worse than ugly. So I don't know what that means, if you were a regular black. A good heart will help you to a bonny face, my lad, if you were a regular black, and a bad one will turn the bonniest into something worse than ugly. Well, I don't know what that means. I don't think... Again, I don't think it's racial, but I don't know. And now that we've done washing and combing and soaking, tell me whether you don't think yourself rather handsome. I'll tell you I do. You're fit for a prince in disguise. Who knows, but your father was emperor of China, and your mother an Indian queen, each of them able to buy up with one week's income, Wuthering Heights, and Thrush Cross Grange together. And you were kidnapped by wicked sailors and brought to England. Were I in your place, I would frame high notions of my birth, and the thoughts of what I was should give me courage and dignity to support the oppressions of a little farmer. Well, I mean, this this Mrs. Dean, old Nellie's turning into quite a, you know, a little uh, open-hearted liberal, dare I say it, you know? Wearing her heart on her sleeve, helping Heathcliff feel better about himself, telling, you know, puffing him up, telling him how handsome he is. And, you know, my impression of Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, to, to the extent that I had one, which was not much of one, but I always imagined him as a very good looking, sort of dark haired, brooding, gaunt figure stumbling around on the moors. And that seems to be, in fact, what he is. So I chattered on, and Heathcliff gradually lost his frown and began to look quite pleasant, when all at once our conversation was interrupted by a rumbling sound moving up the road and entering the court. He ran to the window and I to the door, just in time to behold the two Lintons descend from the family carriage, smothered in cloaks and furs, and the Earnshaws dismount from their horses. They often rode to church in winter. Catherine took a hand of each of the children and brought them into the house and set them before the fire, which quickly put color into their white faces. Now, well, hold on a second, because there's something, uh, something, uh, there's some logic here that doesn't quite make sense. Let's just hold on a second, everybody. Emily, your logic doesn't make sense, Miss Emily. If they're looking from the second floor down, right, and they see everybody get out, right, of the carriage and the horses, and Kathy takes the hands of the kids and leads them into the house. Okay, fine. But then how does she know that she brought them and set them before the fire, which quickly put color into their white faces? She'd have to see through the floor. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. I urged my companion to hasten now and show his amiable humor, and he willingly obeyed. But ill luck would have it that as he opened the door leading from the kitchen on one side, Hindley opened it on the other. They met, and the master, irritated at seeing him clean and cheerful, or perhaps eager to keep his promise to Mrs. Linton, shoved him back with a sudden thrust and angrily bade Joseph keep the fellow out of the room, sent him into the garret till dinner is over. He'll be cramming his fingers in the tarts and stealing the fruit if left alone with them a minute. Nay, sir, I could not avoid answering. He'll touch nothing, not he. And I supposed he must have his share of the dainties as well as we. He shall have his share of my hand, if I catch him downstairs again till dark, cried Hindley. Be gone, you vagabond. What, you're attempting the coxcomb, are you? 
Wait till I get hold of those elegant locks, see if I won't pull them a bit longer. They are long enough already, observed Master Linton, peeping from the doorway. I wonder they don't make his head ache. It's like a colt's mane over his eyes. That's right. Your hair's long, you hippie, and turn down that music. They're being very cruel to Heathcliff, really for no reason. Ultimately, they just don't like the lad, you know? It's all overblown. I don't know. I don't know what the Linton's problem is. I mean, yeah, he was kind of, he was caught skulking around outside, but so was Kathy. And what do they do? They dress her up and give her sweets. And him, they bid adieu, adieu, I say. He ventured this remark without any intention to insult. Well, it's like a colt's mane over his eyes. Do you don't think that would insult Heathcliff? But Heathcliff's violent nature was not prepared to endure the appearance of impertinence from one whom he seemed to hate. Even then, as a rival, he seized a tureen of hot applesauce. Oh, 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 just as I had hoped, the clean kitchen is about to get must. He seized a tureen of hot applesauce, the first thing that came under his gripe, and dashed it full against the speaker's face and neck, who instantly commenced a lament that brought Isabella and Catherine hurrying to the place. Well, 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 I guess we can leave it there. Violence has erupted there at Wuthering Heights. And who's to say it wasn't provoked? I say it was. And yet, certainly the Lintons will claim to be victims in all of this. And thus, another war has broken out. And we see how these things quickly get out of hand. And, uh, yeah, scary times. Scary times indeed, both at Wuthering Heights and here at, uh, from, our, from our vantage point, looking across the pond. So, yeah, there we are. Uh, very hard to say what next week will bring. I mean, it's interesting recording this in real time, obviously, because we know historical events are unfolding under our feet and you, at the distance of several days or weeks or years hence, will have a very different perspective on it than I have in this moment. So we'll leave it there. Uh, with history unfurling before us. And yeah, we shall look into that glass darkly as we prepare for another portentous episode of Obscure next week. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black and get even more obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening.